Hello and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by Discipleship.org. My name is Dave Stovall and I'm going to be your host. Today we're listening from Global Discipleship Initiative, given one of their track sessions from last year's forum. We've got Greg Ogden and Dan Dominguez, and they're talking to us about being a spiritual grandparent, meaning those that make disciples who then turn around and make other disciples. This is the long-term goal for us disciple makers, and it's not one that comes easily. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he gave us the Great Commission. This is how the gospel spreads organically with sustainable and relational roots. So let's listen in and hear from Greg and Dan as they encourage us in making disciples and make other disciples. Enjoy the episode, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Great session we just had, wasn't it? Yes. Sir loved uh, hearing how God puts together, back together, broken people. Mm. One of the delights of my retirement years, or I call them redeployment years, has been getting involved in prison ministry. And uh, for six and a half years or so, I was every Wednesday <laughs> morning at a fairly local California state prison. And I used to say to these guys, I come here to see Jesus because I see it in you. And uh, when you see broken people being put back together again, um, I have a, you know, there was one guy who was obviously a white supremacist. Nazi tattoos on his body, had hate written across his knuckles, and uh, then find this guy kind of bopping into our chapel on Wednesday mornings with the great joy in his life and embracing all people of all colors. Uh, it's, you know, you see that kind of redemptive work. That's just more fabulous. Well, my name is Greg Ogden, and here representing all these blue-shirted people here, uh, Global Discipleship Initiative in terms of our our focus, and we have some resources over there for you if you want to take advantage of them. I'm sure they would be delighted to uh, help you with that. But we're, this has been our, our focus, is uh, looking overcoming four major obstacles to making reproducing disciples. And selected these out of a lifetime of experience of attempting to make disciples and the challenges that I've, I've certainly faced. And I think we all have, and you may not nominate these as your, your favorite topics, I don't know. If you would look at your, your obstacles, we could probably come up with other ones. But uh, you're kind of stuck with my choices at this point. So um, we've been looking at uh, growing disciple-making culture, how uh, intentionally or unintentionally uh, cultures can work for you or work against you in terms of uh, the whole flow of disciple-making. And spent some time on that. Last session we looked at the fact that we tend to substitute programs for relationship. And uh, the basic reason why programs do not work in terms of transforming people is they're not relational. You're not getting to know people on a face-to-face basis in a, in a deep way, in a trusting uh, context. Yeah. So today, we come to the hardest nut of all, uh, in my experience, and that is empowering people to make disciples who then make disciples. And so, um, that's, this is the, 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 the challenge, and maybe we can even have some group think together about how to face some of these challenges as we, as we go through it. But, so we can all quote 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, right? You know, what, I, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul says to Timothy, and trust the faithful ones who can teach others also. We love to quote that verse. 
Now, that's our discipling verse. Now, how do you put flesh on it? How do you really make it work and become a reality rather than just quoting uh, the verse? So I think that's the, the biggest issue. So let me tell you about a, kind of a, a period of time of frustration in my own life. I think I had, I, I had adopted the kind of one-on-one discipling model uh, because, you know, my first impressions in terms of being discipled was in a one-on-one relationship. So I was uh, going in my sophomore year in college. Uh, I got a phone call from Don, who was our seminary student running our junior high ministry. He had started an outreach program called Campus Club. He had about 130 kids showing up there every Wednesday night. He needed help. I was on the list of college students. Uh, Greg, could you be a part of a team working with our, our, our junior high ministry? I had come to faith as, as a seventh grader myself and uh, had gotten no help from the church at all. I signed a decision card at a camp in seventh grade. had a wonderful, overwhelming experience of the love of God in my life. I uh, was told that I should read the Bible if I had become a Christian that weekend. My, you know, I had never read the Bible in my life. I had no clue as to where to start. Came back from that weekend, complete silence. I had no idea what happened to that card. Probably went into some file. They probably wrote an article in the church news newsletter about all these conversions that happened at that weekend. You know, it wasn't a great. And we, you know, we had all these abortions that took place. <laughs> uh, sorry about that graphic language. But uh, that's essentially what we were left with. You know, give you birth and then set you out to, in the wilderness. Um, but God holds on to you, brings you back. So I got involved back in church life in my senior year in high school through some circumstances and then got on the path of growth. So Don invited me to be uh, working with junior high kids. I showed up every Wednesday night, did that, uh, and lo and behold, what did I get? Investment in seventh grade boys. Um, Don challenged us uh, to get out and meet these kids on their turf, you know, pick them up after school. I had my little red VW bug, pick up the kids, go play basketball, get, get their homes, get involved in their lives. And then Don would call up periodically and, and say, hey, let's get together one-on-one. Go to the park, sit across the park bench, play some tennis. I was playing competitive tennis in those days, and so it was kind of fun to beat him in a tennis match. Uh, and then we would sit uh, on the bench next to the tennis court, and Don would pull out his New Testament and begin sharing with me some things out of Scripture that were deeply speaking to his life. And he did it in the, in the context of not just sharing the Scripture, but sharing his life and how that scripture impacted his life, and sometimes how it was difficult to conform his life to the image of God that uh, we wanted to be. So I think I just kind of, in a sense, by osmosis, uh, picked up the model, that, okay, if you're going to have impact upon people, you've got to spend time with them. You've got to walk alongside them. This is not a quick fix. You've got you know, let's talk about proximity uh, today. Get involved in people's world. And uh, I love that, that term. Uh, proximity. And probably also because uh, I think back in those days, the Navigators was pretty focused on one-to-one discipling. So I kind of picked up that that version of it at that point in time. So uh, I just began to practice that myself. So I would be meeting, asking men uh, to meet with me, and we'd meet over a period of time. And it was, I was trying to figure out how to do that discipling relationship. 
And what do we cover? Well, you can cover some Christian doctrine and content. I think I use John Stott's basic Christianity quite a bit in terms of my piecing things together. And then I would say, I'm meeting with somebody, I guess, guess we should do something about quiet time or some spiritual disciplines, kind of gobble together some material. Uh, I guess we should talk some about uh, what's it mean to be Christian in your family. Maybe that's a good thing. So I was just constantly cobbling things together. But one of the things that was very frustrating was the inability to see my investment in them turn around, become empowering them to invest in others. I was, uh, I was not seeing that. So you know the definition of insanity, right? Yeah. <laughs> Doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. Well, I did that for, for quite a long time, you know, trying to refine my approach, but still was not seeing uh, something good take place like that. So um, that kind of was a frustration. So I want to set up our, our, our time here because I like to help us sort of define uh, what our, our challenge is. And so perhaps the major challenge that I've already mentioned is this. Um, but a way to kind of put some flesh on it, I'd like to get us engaged in the, in the topic right, right away. So here's a, a, a question I'd like to you know, have you group up and share with. Um, so you as a pastor or leader, uh, approach a fellow believer. And so let's say somebody comes to faith, new in Christ in your church, and you realize that you have a responsibility for helping this person actually grow. And perhaps uh, on a Sunday morning, kind of visualize yourself on maybe the church patio or however you guys gather where you are. And uh, you say, okay, I've got Joe or Jane in tow. Uh, just come to faith in Christ. And you walk up to you know somebody on the patio and say, yeah, no, you're, you're kind of a you're mature believer. I see you're fine. Uh, here's your challenge. I want you to walk along Joe or Jane for the next year or so, help them get re-grounded in their faith, but your job is not done until they can do the same for others. How many people in your church would be prepared to accept that responsibility? Okay, talk, talk with each other about that. Uh, how would you assess the, the readiness of people in your own congregation to accept responsibility of helping walking alongside somebody, bring them maturity, and then empowering them to disciple others? So find some partners to talk about. And what do you think it would take uh, for somebody to be a discipler, to pr provide that kind of multiplication? So. Okay, let me uh, break into your conversations here. I almost hate to break this up. You're having such a good time. Give me, uh, give me a little bit, bit of feedback here. Uh, where, where do you think the average person might be in your church, the everyday Christian, as they keep talking about uh, here, uh, in terms of their ability to accept that kind of challenge and responsibility? You're in the headline. You're in the headline. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, what do you think somebody would say to you if you were if they were asked to do that? What would might be their response? Awkward silence. Awkward silence. Seriously? Okay. <laughs> okay. Who do you want me to deal with? Yeah. Well, I'm, I got the person right there. This is this is this is George. This is the one new believer. Yeah. All right, just we'll work on it that way. Yeah. And, uh, never been taught and equipped. Never what? Been taught and equipped. I've never been taught and equipped. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that would be a good way out, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bring them through the various things that we we already do. 
and like we talked about in last session in terms of what programs we got Bible, and Bible studies. We, we preach the gospel on Sunday morning, teach the word, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? <laughs> really? Well, I've heard that. Okay. What's in it for me? If I am helping somebody yeah. else along? If I help somebody, what do I get out of it? Wow. wow. <laughs> We've got a deeper issue there. <laughs> wow. Then I, I think that person needs to be converted first. Yeah. 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 Well said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Greg, my, my friend Randy here made a good point, too, which is, you know, if they haven't had that done for them, right. then they're yeah. probably yeah. asking, yeah. could I have that first before? Yeah. 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 So I've never experienced being discipled myself. Oh, okay. Um, maybe I feel like it's Yeah. And, and is my life enough of a model for somebody mm-hmm. else yeah. to be able to put myself up against someone? That kind of thing. So I think uh, the person you would go to and ask them to walk along some by somebody else, you first have to have a relationship mm-hmm. with that person you're asking. Yeah, right. That's true. Uh, That's true. You would need to know them and yeah. Yeah. I think that person needs to have been discipled. Right. By okay. you or by somebody. somebody. Yeah. Then he's he's he or she's equipped. Has some kind of understanding what yeah. that experience is all about and what you might do and that kind of thing. So is it even on the radar screen of our churches? No. Is it even part of the expectation that we would be growing Christians to make disciples who make disciples? It's not on the agenda, is it? We talk about it. We talk, yeah, okay. We do. But, but it's not, you know, we talk about culture in our first session. Is there a culture where there's an expectation that the nature of the Christian life is that you would you would be a reproducer. You would multiply, you know, whether it's just walking alongside somebody else or part of the evangelistic process. We would help people come to faith in Christ and all that. So it's, I mean, we got miles to go before we sleep here, right? <laughs> in terms of that, yeah. getting used to it. Okay, so yeah, possible answers I wrote down was people lack confidence. I don't know the Bible well enough. Right. Yeah, that's that would be I think a major roadblock. Uh, what would I? What would I do? Uh, do you have Do you have a book I can use <laughs> to help? Uh, isn't that the job for pastors and well trained people? They're supposed to do that. You don't really should expect me to do that. Right? So those kinds of things. Um, so let's let's try to move to towards some of the solution orientation. Uh, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about the one on one discipling and the dynamic of that and how that's different from. Uh, what we're going to be calling a microgroup in terms of the concept there. But the whole idea of uh, we're trying to create, uh, in a, at least through our ministry, a, a fairly simple process that's reproducible for the average person. And I think that's the, that's the key issue here. So when I was doing one-on-one discipling, uh, I began to reflect upon that experience and sort of the deficiencies of that experience. Now, this is not to demean anybody who's had a one-to-one discipling relationship that's been effective for you and has been a blessing in your life. I, I know that that happens. Uh, but what I found were a number of these, these things. 
One, in a one-to-one relationship, the discipler carries the full weight of responsibility for the person that you're investing in. I always felt the pressure was right here. No. Okay, I've got to come up with the wise things to say, the next topic to cover. The agenda was always my on my agenda. Uh, so the way I sort of compare it to a mother bird having to feed baby birds, you know. So the baby birds are in the nest. They got their mouths wide open. <laughs> the mother bird goes out and gets the morsels, has to drop them in the mouth, right? And that's, you know, taking that kind of responsibility one-on-one puts the pressure on the discipler. And actually, it kind of took a lot of the fun away for me, you know, in terms of that, because, okay. Secondly, it sets up a hierarchy and creates dependency. The one-to-one relationship. And what's the, what's the biblical paradigm that we, we use for, for one-to-one discipling? Paul Timothy. Paul Timothy, right? So Paul, the elder in the faith, serving the younger in the faith, the one who's the mature, serving the immature, one who's the teacher, serving the student. And uh, it just creates a dependency upon the, quote, teacher in the sense of that relationship. Uh, and uh, it sets up a hierarchy of relationship. And that makes it very difficult to reproduce if you are the one who is being taught by the master teacher, in a sense. And then to turn around and, and be able to replicate that experience makes it, makes it very difficult. Uh, there's limited interchange. It's a two-way dialogue. Uh, back and forth, and I compare it to a ping pong game, you know, hitting the ball back and forth across the table. And, uh, and so it doesn't create the kind of, <coughs> excuse me, energy that will come when we look at uh, the, what we call the microgroup or the group of three or four. It, it restricts discipling to one model. Uh, you as the discipler become the model for somebody else. <coughs> I don't know about you, but I don't know if I want to become the model for somebody else. We were talking about brokenness in our last session. You know, I'm, I'm in touch enough with my own areas of deficiency uh, that uh, I'm not sure that I want to be the sole person to be discipling somebody else. I want to be in that with others, but not uh, just by myself. And then in my experience, this may be not yours, but in my experience, I could not get it to reproduce. It seemed, it seemed like a model that we held up for a long time uh, as the way to go, but I've, I've not noticed it having great reproduction process. You figure out why? For all those reasons. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I just gave you the reasons why it leads to that conclusion. Yeah. So, and then uh, we tout what we call a microgroup. Um, in my first version of Transforming Discipleship, I called them triads. And then I did some rewrite in 2016 of Transforming Discipleship. And we had then, uh, we were working with Camarillo Community Church, some of the representatives over there. Um, they, they called them quads um, in terms of what they were putting together. So we talked about groups of three or four. And so we just used the term microgroup to capture groups of three or four because they have a very similar kind of dynamic uh, to them. So in the my group, what did I notice in terms of the shift? Well, let me tell you, I guess, let me tell you the story of kind of discovery of microgroups uh, for me, which was two things happened uh, some many, many years ago in close proximity that entirely changed my, my paradigm for how to, how to make disciples. I was uh, associate pastor of a church in West Los Angeles. I was completing my doctor minister degree at Fuller. I had written a 
very early version of what later became Discipleship Essentials. And uh, I was approached by a young man by the name of Eric. He was two years out of college. And he said, would you mentor me? And I, I had no idea probably what mentoring meant, you know, at that point in time. But I uh, had at least had this early version of Discipleship Essentials. And, and one of the, my faculty advisors said, well, let's take this curriculum and use it in different contexts. Let's experiment with the dynamics. Why don't you do your traditional one-on-one? Uh, how about a group of three? You know, that might be good. And then do a kind of traditional small group. So we took the same curriculum, had a group of 10. My wife is in that group of 10. And they took forever to get through that, that material. And then I, but Eric and I got together and we added a, a third, Carl, and began to meet together. And it was a revelation to me. We would meet over lunch. We'd bring our, I'd bring the notebooks that I had put together and sit at a lunch table and start to interact. And the first thing I noticed was energy. The energy level just went up. There'd be times I'd kind of come in there kind of dragging and walk out of there like, woo, uh, this, was, this was fun. And I had this kind of like, what was the difference here? What's going on? It made such a different break. Well, it was just adding a third party. Uh, created that sense sense of energy uh, on that. So, uh, and then, of course, that discipleship curriculum come, came together. So when I realized that you have a group with you, with and then a, a curriculum that can guide you through the process, and I didn't have to make it up as I went, um, that those two things coming together really made for a very powerful combination: biblically based curriculum and a, a content a context of transformation of openness. So here's the, here's the shift that I found from pressure on the discipler to natural participation. I could just be a part of the group. I didn't have to be the focal point. We're, we're in this in an egalitarian fashion, sharing our own insights to a common curriculum. And I could bring my insights. I could hear what other people are saying. I could be on the journey with them rather than being the focal point. That, really felt good to me to have that from hierarchical to relational. Uh, so it wasn't one over another. It was three of us together. Like I said, more of a peer discipling relationship. Uh, I know that, you know, we have the Jesus model of being over the, over the disciples, but in a sense, he was with them as well. And so we were, we were sharing, do you, do you need um, somebody in authority uh, to have a discipling relationship. Uh, was Jesus, uh, he had authority certainly over his disciples, but um, well, I like to say my authority does not come out of being a pos- in a positional authority in that group. Yeah, my authority would have to come out of the quality of my life that I bring to the group, not just because I was the leader of the group. And so and, and in many ways, you could say that was Jesus, obviously, you know, had... <laughs> He had positional authority as well as uh, relational authority, certainly, uh, in that. So uh, I don't think it's necessary to emphasize uh, a hierarchy. Now, we replace that uh, with what we call a covenant. So we have a mutual covenant that we are committed to, to be a part of that experience. So there's an agreement on five different points that we call people to in terms of that that group to make that work. So, But it's it's relational. Um, As a pastor... 
And I didn't have to be the Bible answer man. Uh, sometimes you're put in that position, right? Okay, you're coming across coming uh, uh, across some material that's kind of difficult or questions that are kind of difficult. Okay, Greg, what's the answer to that? I'm not going to be the answer person. <laughs> We're going to research this stuff together and find it out. You know, I'm not going to do that. So uh, from dialogue to dynamic interchange, this is where I, I really found uh, that energy level kind of thing, which I've already talked to uh, talked to you about. From limited input to wisdom in numbers. Uh, I always like to tell a story when I come to this point of, of, of Ken, Ken Bell. Um, Ken and Glenn and I were had a triad going. And uh, Ken was a retired dentist, uh, age 65. And kind of he had come alive in his faith. He was obviously kind of got a, a real jolt and awakening uh, in, in, later in life. <laughs> But he was also very insecure about his faith. And so he would come having written out the answers to the questions in our discipleship material, but almost having, almost having his head down, uh, like if, he, if he's going to get called on, I don't know, he doesn't want to have the answers, right? <laughs> and very timid about that. Well, a group of three, you're not going to hide anywhere, right? <laughs> uh, so um, but about a few weeks into our time together, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so every third week, he was, the regimen was that he would go into a nearby hospital, go through a, a week of chemotherapy, and then be released in two weeks out, and then another week in. And so every third week, Glenn, Glenn and I would go meet Ken at the hospital. So meet him at his, uh, at his bedside. He'd get out of bed, take his drip bag, and we'd go over to the hospital chapel and have our meeting together. And... What I saw happen in Ken's life was that he just came alive with joy. And he was putting his trust in Christ, and, and there was a whole new person being birthed here. And I felt like many times I was sitting at his feet learning from him how to have joy in all circumstances. And uh, he, would, he would not just stay in his hospital bedroom. He would take his, his pole and walk around and visit the other uh, people in the hospital, and, be, and the staff there said, Ken's our unofficial chaplain. <laughs> he goes and ministers to all these people that are there. So I just you know, loved that experience with him. And then from addition to multiplication. And what I found was if you are on a kind of an egalitarian basis, uh, sharing life together in a group, it was much easier for those people to say, oh, I can do this. Uh, well, for all obvious reasons, we, you know, we have a curriculum that guides you the process. We, we very quickly share leadership, send it, send it around. Um, within you know, a few weeks of starting a new group, you know, okay, you're going to lead us through. Chris, you're going to be leading us through lesson three. You know, prepare for that. And it's very, fairly simple because you're going through a curriculum, but you're starting with some sharing questions. You're catching up with what's going on in, in each other's lives. By the time you're done, you have led this group many, many times. It's small enough and simplistic enough that uh, it's easy to do. Uh, so people can overcome. If, if then discipling is simply being able to, in a sense, facilitate a group uh, where you're providing an environment for others so that they can grow because you have been in that environment and have experienced the growth in that, you can replicate that same kind of experience for others. And that's what we have, that's what we have found. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second so that you can hear a brief message from our sponsors. Here they are. 
Wouldn't it be great if someone who knew what they were doing, who actually had proven results, would just share with you exactly how to make disciples? Hi, I'm Doug Burrier, a decision scientist and a real-life disciple maker. This year, I'm discipling six of my neighbors. That's crazy. They don't even go to our church. My friends and I made 1,392 disciples last year. So if you're tired of hearing the same old blog and keynote messages, droning on about the why, the need, and the theory, I want to invite you to hear the simple how-tos that have bunches of churches and hundreds of people making thousands of disciples all around the world. How to recruit, how to get them to love reading the Bible, how to transform them, how to run a meeting, like a real proven agenda, how to make individual disciples in a group setting, how to give people the wonderful, abundant life that God promised them. This is what I found in sustainable discipleship. It's not materials, it's not another program. It's a simple, repeatable set of how-tos. If you're ready for something proven, practical, and different, visit sustainable-discipleship.com. That's sustainable-discipleship.com. The team will be happy to share with you everything God shared with them. All right, let's get back to the episode. Uh, to take a look at what we mean by microgroup, and then I'm going to invite uh, Strad and uh, Dave. Or Dave, you're going to come and introduce Strad. Is that what you're doing? Dan. Huh? Okay, Dan. Okay. Okay, this is why I do that. Great. Was there a, a Michigan guy wearing a Michigan coat? There he is. I saw that. So I'll come back to that. So we're, we heard from our, the, the, the young woman, everybody's younger than I am at this point, speak very powerfully about community, right? She said, created for community, healed in community, right? And so that, I think that's, that's great because Greg talked about it. We, you know, there's, there's some things that happen in community, right? Confess your sins one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed, Right? That, that don't happen anywhere else. Michigan reminded me of a guy named Avidus Donabedian. Anybody ever heard of that guy? Michigan professor, famous guy, father of quality. And he has this, he had this very simple formula, structure, process, outcome. So of course we want a quality outcome, and that outcome is what? Disciples who reproduce. And so what, what leads to that is structure and process. So I'm going to talk about structure. Okay, I'm going to talk about structure. So we have this container, this vehicle, right? I, I was even thinking about it's a stew pan, you know, a pot that, that carries these ingredients, that holds these ingredients, and this is critical. This is what's going to give uh, a, a place, an environment for the Holy Spirit to work. Greg said that the text is the Bible, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. Well, what are the ingredients necessary for that to take place? One person, Dave already modeled that for us. Here's the, the, the per, prayerful personal invitation, not a sign-up sheet, not a QR code, personal invitation. Would you join me as we journey together to become more Christ-like? It's not, come with me, I'm going to show you the way. As we journey together, I need you, as, I need you more than you need me. And, and those that have been in, in microgroups, man, there's something that, ta- I don't care how many times you've been through it, you need that group. So uh, a personal imita- invitation, two or three others, gender specific, personal invitation, triad, uh, quad, as, as, as Greg mentioned, it's a year to a year and a half. And I think we heard in the last session, who's going to do that? How many generations have you had? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Years, decades. Yeah. People, that's why it's prayerful. And, and, you know, God looks at the heart. I'll look at somebody and say, he's not going to do it. And God says, go ask him. Mm-hmm. 
And you, you tell the story about the lawyer, the, the golf. Yeah, he says, there's no way. And the guy says, you know, if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd have said no. I just read Lee Strobel's book, I'm in. You don't, we don't know. But people, and, and it, you give them, just like Jesus, you know, if anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You give him the cost up front. Here it is. There's a commitment, a covenant. There it is. That's the next one. Year to year and a half. You know, start small, go slow, and you need to go slow so that you can go deep. And then you think big, but you, you need the time to go deep. I've, I've had guys that you can see, you know, four, five, six weeks in, maybe even longer, that they, they want to say something, but they're just, they're just afraid. You know, this, I, I can think of a guy right now, he says, you know what, and when he finally got out, you could just tell week to week, he, this guy wanted to say something, but he was afraid. He was afraid that we were going to condemn him. They were going to judge him. Like this horrible thing that he did as a teenager, you know, and he finally shared it. I'm thinking, gosh, is that the worst you've done? <laughs> you know? But he was so relieved. But it took time for him to, to trust us enough that, you know, I've got I've to share this. You know, he was just so relieved that he could. So year, year and a half, walking through the material. Covenant, a key aspect of the covenant and we, we go easy on individuals to begin with because we don't want to scare them off. But would you prayerfully consider starting a group upon completion? We, we, we start to, to be a little more direct about it as we move through it. And what, 60 plus percent, 60 plus percent of those that complete the curriculum, the 25 lessons go on to start microgroups of their own. We had a great question last time. How do you know when they're ready? Greg will say, sometimes, and I've done it, sometimes they're individually not ready. So you pair them up. You say, you two go find one each more and, and run a group. So that grows them up a little bit more. Uh, 90 minutes a, a week. We'll talk a little bit about the importance of curriculum later on. It's, it's very important. It gives you a lot. And finally, then, uh, meets in a safe place. Office, Coffee shop, room at the church, your home. It just needs to be a place where they feel safe in sharing, sharing it deeply. Amen. I think that's it. Great. Oh, and I'm supposed to now introduce Strad. Strad, if you come forward, Strad. He's a guy like me. I'm, I'm just an ordinary Christian in the pew. That, that my pastor in a fairly small church gave a lot of opportunity to. And I was, I was allowed to, to grow up. Strad, very similar. You know, D Dave gave him opportunity to grow as a leader. Now he is the associate director of the Midwest region for GDI. With that, Strad Brewer. Hey, good afternoon. Or good morning. We're not there yet. So anyway, this is some exciting stuff, isn't it? Must be hungry. Because I'm getting really impassioned by this, even though I've been in it for a few years. But I, I love this. Great reminders, great things. Uh, I'm really impassioned for pastors. Um, you guys have the biggest impact, I think, in your church. Um, but I'll share with you a little bit. Back in late 2016, I was invited um, by Dave to join him on a journey. He gave me the Transforming Discipleship book. Um, I'm one of those people at that point in time, loving God, loving people. Um, I think I got through the first chapter. I was supposed to read the whole book, but I, I'm not a big reader, but... I knew that after that first chapter that I wanted to do this journey, so I said yes to him. 
Um, I didn't tell him I didn't read the book yet. But, uh, <laughs> but I didn't was, know that. Yeah, he, he didn't know that for the longest time. He knows now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, confession tonight. Yeah. Good time. <laughs> because this is a safe space, I can. Yeah. <laughs> What's said in here stays in here, right? Yeah. Okay. So 2017, we we began this journey, and I will. And I have often told people by week two of this, I knew that this was something I was going to do for the rest of my life, or until Jesus came back. Knew it from the end. I told him that in week two. Because this is something that was so needed. When I read that first chapter in the book, I knew that for me it was something that I knew what was missing. I grew up as a Catholic in the Catholic Church, talked about the Great Commission, knew about it, but it's never been lived out. I've never seen it lived out. And, you know, I got baptized in 2013 at the church I'm currently in. Um, but prior to that, I actually gave my life to the Lord in 2001, 10 days after 9-11 happened. Uh, in front of like 15, 18,000 people, uh, me and a couple hundred uh, gave, our, gave our lives to the Lord. But the thing about it is, between 2001 and 2013, you know, there was a 12 years and I was kind of on my own. You know, I think back now, I probably would have gotten baptized back then had I had somebody with me, leading me, walking alongside with me. So um, that was a big thing. So after Dave and I um, did our journey, um, several things happened during that and that are very pivotal for for me. One is I went through a time in my job where I had to take like a month off for stress leave. I was at the point in my life where my job had come to a point to where I was about ready to walk out. Um, and you know you want to walk out, but you can't because you're the main breadwinner. Um, that can create a lot of anxiety and stress. And so um, having Dave there with that really helped through that. Um, a couple months after me returning to work, a friend of mine, a co-worker, died in a motorcycle accident. Um, him and I had a relationship, and his wife had asked me to do the funeral. Now, I was like, I'm not a pastor, not ordained, we're not going to do that. So I said, Dave, would you do that for me? <coughs> he said, Strad, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. He said, but I will walk alongside with you and do that. So um, we talked with his wife, and, you know, about uh, 300 people, I performed the funeral for them. And... Um, Again, something I never thought I would do, ever done. I didn't even think about it. It wasn't even on my mind. Um, and from there on, I've actually spoken at a couple funerals and actually have done a wedding um, since then. So these are positions that God has, has placed me in, I believe, because of what I've been doing and the steps I've been taking. So after we finished our journey, um, we formed two other groups, actually three other groups. Um, I went ahead and uh, discipled two other men in my church. Um, they, in turn, discipled two other, and we just kept growing in our church and you know here's to 2022 and we've expanded beyond our church um we probably have about 50 men i would say maybe 20 mature believers there and they have gone through that i think they have all gone through discipleship at least once and so we're kind of saturated in that aspect so we've had to go beyond and and dave's a really great seed planner i guarantee you, if he's on a plane trip uh, with somebody, somebody has a book of transforming discipleship in their hand before they left the airplane. Guarantee it. <laughs> Guarantee it. And because of that, we are now probably in about, what, 12 churches, I think? Maybe more than that. 22 churches. 22 churches. See, I mean, it just keeps growing. All right. And over 50 microgroups now. All right. So um, when things start going, you know, God has his hand all over it. There's no stopping it. You know, we had a pandemic in the midst of that. And what do we do? We had Zoom meetings. We just kept going. It didn't stop. So whenever, I mean, I'm speaking to pastors here, if you ever make any kind of excuses, there are none. Mm -hmm. There really are. 
You know, you look at the first uh, century church. Did persecution stop the church from, from going? Nope. They grew even more so through that. So we have no excuses. And all of us have been called. You know, Matthew 28 is a, is a basis for it all. And, you know, I was having a conversation with Dave. It's like, why that verse? Why of all the verses in the Bible does that have to be the one that we follow? Anybody now have an answer? Jesus gave it. Jesus gave it. And they were Jesus's. Well, I was going to say last words, but, you know, famous last words, right? They were the last words, you know. And even here in America, looking at our culture, we look at famous last words. You know, Steve Jobs, I mean, he's dying. You know, famous people who have last words we listen to. We want to hear what kind of wisdom do they have to give us after living a certain life or whatever. Well, I mean, you're going to listen to any famous last words. It might as well be Jesus, right? He gave a command for us. And so now we, uh, we have the joy, the privilege, the honor, and being part of the greatest commission of all time. You know, it's just, and again, being here for the second year in a row this forum, um, it just impassions me even more so. Um, so this, this being thrust into this leadership role, was it almost became a natural progression uh, for me because of the passion that I have for living out the Great Commission. Um, it's something I want to do. Um, like they say, the harvest is, is planted, but the laborers are few, right? So this is something that we need to do and we should want to do, you know, so. I had one of those rare dreams this morning that microgroups had spread throughout all the world as the normative way that people live. Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of had chills when I heard that Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Strand, for that, sharing that. Okay. Well, we want to take a next step in. And, Bev, you're up next. We're going to take a look at uh, forming. Oops, that's the one I want right there. Forming these groups. Um, one of the things that was mentioned as Bev is coming up was the importance of a covenant at the center of these microgroups. And at the beginning of Disciples of Essentials, it shares that covenant in, in five points. Uh, first point is that you will show up at your meeting with all your stuff prepared. Uh, you, you make the investment. You come prepared, having completed the material in the workbook, ready to share uh, the thing, your own insights into Scripture. So you begin to learn to trust your own ability to study Scripture, to articulate it uh, with each other. The second thing is you will show up on a regular basis um, and you know, come some excuse that you, don't, you can't get there, like you, know, you died or something like that. Um, but uh, we want people to be a regular. Um, the, the third element is to foster a, a spirit of open, openness and, and honesty, trust, on the group, um, we, we have a high focus on confidentiality. Whatever's shared in the group stays in the group because we want that trust level. We want people to anticipate a third ele fourth element, which is this is going to be a time of accelerated growth. I talk about microgroups as the hot houses of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That the environment that is created in these smaller groups of trust with the where God is center uh, creates an accelerated experience of growth in people's lives. So that's what I had experienced. And then the five, fifth one is uh, you are committing from the beginning to seriously consider, Dan, I was already mentioned this, uh, to 
reproduce this process with at least two others following the completion of your time with Discipleship Essentials. So we want people from the very get-go to be considering that this is what you're going to be doing. This is not, we don't spring this on you at the very end, oh, by the way, you know, what you need to do now. No, you have this in your mind all the way through the process that you're going to be moving from participant to a facilitator, to a leader, to a recruiter, to asking somebody to, to join you and to do that. So what I want us to look at here is to ensure a greater possibility, there's no 100% guarantee, ensure a greater possibility of reproduction, uh, is the way you start a group uh, and how you lay the foundations is very integral to actually making see this happen in terms of the multiplication taking place. I've asked Bev to talk about the first two elements here, praying for the Spirit's discernment uh, in terms of who it is that you're inviting to join you, and then making that invitation. So, Bev? So yesterday you heard me say that I walked into the office of the church and said, this is dynamite. Well, one of the reasons it's dynamite is exactly why Greg has us memorize in the very first lesson Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And instead of just the go, do you see the verse before it? And it just, it gives you goosebumps. And Jesus said, All authority <laughs> has been given to me. Now go. And throughout the world, can you imagine and even think, and I had not realized that, that the power of the universe resides inside of me. And it didn't depend on me, shy, nothing coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, it just gives you that ability to do what he said, go, and then the next verse is go and make disciples. And make disciples is the key verb. And as an English teacher, I love to analyze that whole thing. And the key verb is go and make disciples. So when I ask women, and it is gender specific, and so I, um, I say this, and it's, it's just worked many, many times. Would you like to join me on a journey for accelerated spiritual growth? And it's like the expectations are so clear, I can tell right away if people are saying, <laughs> bye, or uh, wow, I've been waiting, and I've literally had that response, I've been waiting for someone to ask me that for all my life. So people are waiting. All you have to do is ask, and don't be offended if they say no. Because, like Greg said, part of this is in the, it's on page 14, by the way. It's on page 12 on the essential plan. But it's prayerfully identify who is God putting on your mind. Well, I've recognized now over the years that when God repeats something, I better start listening. So if God brings somebody to mind again and again, and then some other, I've either got to call them or talk to them or ask them. And it's amazing what you're going to find. So that prayer prior to the time that you would start this is the actual foundation for it. Then because I said this is dynamite and knowing that the expectations are very clear, that's what makes the difference. You're going to get people in there who are not just there for fellowship or, yeah, let's right. get together. So I'm going to tell you how I've also failed in all of the groups that I've had since 2010. I, I thought, well, teachers, okay, let's get a group of teachers together. 
four teachers we met after school. Uh, it was hard. Why? Because pe uh, teachers are coming off their school day, so they're griping about the kids, the parents, the administrators, the, the problems that they're having, all the stress. So it took like 30 minutes just to get everybody calmed down, like you said, <laughs> bring them down. But um, then they just started enjoying us, and we'd meet each week, and it would, you know, they're tired after school. But by the time we got through the 25 lessons, hey, this has been so great, let's study Revelation. They didn't catch the disciple making, and it just flopped. So you do have to make that expectation clear, because then one of them went to the pastor, Ralph, and said, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> we want to do this, and she won't let us. <laughs> so it's that expectation that has to be clarified at yeah. first, for sure. So it has grown. Talk about multiplication. It's now in 29 languages. One of the gals that really convicted me, talk about people <coughs> talking into your life. One gal was from Vietnam. She was one of those boat people in 75 who had to leave, and then pirates and all that, and being in a refugee camp, and then coming over here, and, and problems are going to occur in your life. And so I was going through one of my major problems, and she said, babe, you've just got to surrender. Just surrender. <laughs> I didn't really know what that meant. But... It's now in Vietnamese. She went ahead and had that translated into Vietnamese. She's in a Vietnamese church there in Southern California. It's in Chinese, in Mandarin. It's in, we went to Romania. Uh, I've got a Zoom group in Zambia. I mean, it's just mushrooming. And it's, uh, you can't imagine. I mean, once you're in it, you, you don't know how powerful this is until you actually experience it. Amen. It's not just reading another book. So, So those first two points, pray for the Spirit's discernment. Um, I always say that the most important starting point is prayer. Asking God to put on your heart who it is that he's drawing you to. So when you go to invite them, you feel like you really have a call uh, to invite them. This is not some kind of a guy close my eyes and put my, my finger on the, some name in the church directory and you know, right. make a random call. It's... Uh, you know, it's a, something carefully done. And then you've heard about the personal investment. And we, we contrasted that last time. It's the difference between looking somebody in the eye and inviting them to join you on a journey versus making a mass announcement in front of church on a Sunday morning that we have this new discipleship program. You all sign up. That's a very different dynamic, you know, in terms of what we're, what we're setting apart. Um, and then the next two items, uh, Jim, you are up here to share, share what is involved and review the covenant. Yeah, so uh, when I have prayed and, and some men come to mind, um, I always take them out to coffee. I want to sit down. I want to see what's going on in their life. And so I ask them personally um, about that. Where are you in your spiritual journey? And where would you like to be? And, and then make that invitation. So um, I, I don't recommend doing it on a phone um, unless you intend to do a Zoom, you know, over, over distance. But uh, take them, take them to coffee, and um, and then make that very clear. Share with them the the covenant. Now I know some people make them read a whole book before. Uh, I haven't done that, um, and they still have been successful. But but the book is important because they get an idea, and you have to share that with them. Get an idea of where you're going with this, and what you're going to ask them to do. And so sharing that covenant is 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 critical on that. 
and and so you 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 review that, and uh, I ask them, do you think you are up for this? You want to be a part of this, and um, I will say I don't have a hundred percent response, uh, positive response to that, but I've got you know eighty five percent. You know, there's some people just not ready um, for that, so that's okay. So they might be ready later. So yeah. Okay. So yeah, you want to obviously share what is involved, meaning you, they, you want them to know what they're getting themselves into. What's the work requirement that's there? You take them through a you know, sample lesson in the, in the book. This is what you're going to be filling out. Uh, we probably will get through a half a lesson at a time. The book is 25 lessons, but you never get through a, a lesson all at one sitting. Uh, so we say, that's why we say a year to year and a half, even though uh, it's 25 lessons, it's not 25 weeks uh, with that and then uh, reviewing the covenant. And then uh, I think Dan made the point that uh, at, within the Discipleship Essentials material after lesson eight and lesson 16, you go back and review your commitment to the covenant and you self-evaluate in terms of how you have done in fulfilling the covenant. And that's where you make the point again uh, that uh, remember, you, you're, you're getting ready to have your own group and constantly reinforcing that, uh, that particular point. I think it's very important. So, uh, any questions, comments? I know we've been rattling on here. Yes. Um, do you, in the curriculum, is there a part where you you help them like learning how to share their faith? And do you see a percentage or a correlation between the people that are involved in the library groups and your conference? Uh, well, yes, the first part, yes, we do. Lesson 19 is on witness, and you're writing out your testimony, and you're sharing your faith testimony with each other uh, in, in that particular lesson, so that you can do either an elevator speech or uh, something longer, you know, in terms of that. And I think what we have noticed is that you know, people gain a greater confidence uh, in sharing their, their faith with others. Where are most people in our church? Have they ever had an experience where they even sat down to articulate what they believe themselves. We're asking people to make a gigantic leap most of the time when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. They haven't even articulated with a trusting fellow Christian what they believe. How are we expecting them to go out and witness to somebody else? So this is kind of a, a step in that direction to say you have to articulate and own your own convictions with one another, and then you're going to gain greater confidence. Because if you can't articulate your faith, you don't own your faith, right? So, other question, yeah. I just want to say, it's really helpful to see the comparison between the one-on-one -on -one model and the, the micro-group model. I was trained in a one-on-one -on -one model. Okay. And really, up until I saw that, I realized it wasn't my fault that it didn't work. <laughs> okay. And I always felt this, this burden, like I've, I've been failing all these years. Yeah, I felt that same way. Yeah. Like I said, definition of insanity, right? Keep working at it and doing it. And, Tweaking it and you know making it better, but it still didn't work. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. Yeah. Question: Can you compare like why, why doesn't this work with twelve? Why do you? I'm going to throw that back at you. Why? Why do you think? I'm going to throw that as an open question. Why? Why is groups of three or four going to work in terms of both in terms of trust and openness and, and accountability as well as uh, then ability to actually reproduce? So. Wait, I, well, how I would you answer? Well, when you get that big, I don't think that you can. Um, this well, number one is too easy to hide mm -hmm. in a group that size. Yeah. 
And it's, it can also be intimidating in a group that gets that size for someone to actually open up and share. Right. Um, so that speaks to the difficulty of multiplication because it's, you know, the whole, the whole point of it is to get each other, you know, to that point where you're passionate yeah. and you're invested and you develop trust. And, you know, that's honestly, you know, going back to Bobby Harrington's five contexts of discipleship, when you, you've got to get down to this level, that's why yeah. Jesus picked three. Right. Yeah, that inner circle of three. Yeah, I, I, the, the larger the group, the greater com, the complexity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we all know K-I-S-S, right? Mm-hmm. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and then we're, we're trying to keep keep it simple. We'll even talk about that more in the next session when, it, when we're talking about leadership and who can lead these kind of groups and that kind of thing. Uh, does it take a you know like special forces kind of guy to lead a group or not? So, yeah. Quick question: um, What about utilizing a one-on-one time in addition to sure. outside of the micro group? Yeah to deal with personal issues, right. walk with people, how do you find that works or doesn't work? I, I think that works well. Uh, I would I, That would be an amendment I would make to the microgroup, because especially as, I guess, a pastor in a group like that, or I'm not a pastor now in a sense of officially in the church, but I'm listening carefully what's going on in, in, in guys' lives, and I will tap one on the shoulder. Let's, let's get together. Uh, one-on-one, something I want to pursue with you is that I've heard you say. <laughs> Things like that that I, I think, yeah, they may not be comfortable enough talking about in the group itself, but wanted to say, I'm noticing something that uh, I think we should talk about. Yeah, so I think that's a good supplement uh, to the to the microgroups. Yeah, experience the one-on-one. Yes? The person was um, happy with the entire uh, covenant, but except for the last part, I'm just not sure that I could, you know, promise to try to multiply. Would yeah. you proceed, or would you wait till that person can come? Well, the, the, way, the way we have worded it is uh, not commit yourself to re- replicate, but give serious consideration to replicating it when you're complete. Uh, for the very reason that it's going to be very difficult for many people to make a, a commitment to that. One, they haven't experienced what it is we're asking them to do. So how do you ask somebody up front who promised to do this? But I, I So that's why we give serious good. And there are, there are people, I would say everybody I've, I've had in a, in a group has discovered other areas of ministry, even if they did not uh, go on to replicate a discipleship group. So maybe he's discovered that they had teaching ministry gifts or you know, compassion ministry in the community or those kind of things that has fostered a greater faithfulness uh, to the Lord as a result of that. Yeah. Well, Brad? Yeah, so I really appreciate like the personal invitation and that's kind of very organic and there's a process, but what is the the kind of top-level communication from like the identity of this is our church? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you retransform the discipleship, I would say, you first of all, you, you do a, a stealth movement. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so you practice this for two, maybe even two and a half years, just getting the foundations laid. No upfront communication. This is not a program that you're inviting people to sign up for because it's it's organic, as you say. These groups grow very slowly, and people are invited into the process. Uh, it's not come sign up for microgroups that kind of thing. And then 
once you kind of get a sense that there's a bit of a buzz in the congregation and people are asking about it, what's going on, you know, I've seen these things happening in people's lives, um, then you kind of transition to much more of a, a, a public communication about what you're doing. But it's still not, you know, sign up for microgroups. It's then you're starting to publicly uh, recognize those people who have then replicated this experience with, you know, you've been here the whole set, all the sessions. So we do the baton pass kind of thing and, and acknowledge that in front of the congregation that these group, these people are completed a microgroup, they're starting their own. Uh, and this is the way we make disciples here. You know, I think it's very important to have a, a, a method or approach that becomes identified with the congregation because that's the way you shape culture is with a particular approach to it. So yeah, I don't know if that helps or not. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes. So, maybe not a quick question, but what do you do with somebody who seeks, I know this is going on, I know you're, you're starting all this stuff, uh -huh. I want to be a part of it. Yeah. But you've got a group, say you only have one or two groups that are, they're already in the middle of what's going on. Maybe I'll come on and be a part of this, or you will put them off until the next group starts. Yeah, it's, it's, it becomes an awkward beginning, you know, in terms of that, if you, people are, are hungry to get involved. Once the groups get started, we keep, we keep them pretty much as closed groups because of the trust you're trying to develop rather than adding somebody mid, midstream in the whole thing. Um, I, I, I'm a little, my, the mistakes I've made is when people have approached me and say, I want to be in your group. Oh, well, I, want to be a, I want to be a part of this. Part of this, yeah. Okay. Right. Would you, maybe at a, a point like that, somebody's ready to start a group and go, okay, you can be a part of yeah. this, but so maybe an individual in one of your groups is ready yes. to step out. Yeah. Okay. Hook them up. You know, hook them up together okay. that way. Sure. Um, so sometimes people are saying, I don't know who to invite, you know. Oh, well, let me tell you, I've got, I know somebody that might be, be good who's hungry to do this. Yeah, so you can play that, you know, matchmaker, networker, you know, kind of, kind of relationship at that point. Yeah. Thanks for listening in to this episode, everybody. I hope that you will hit the subscribe button so that you know when I release the next one. We've got one more track session from GDI coming up, and we're switching to another organization. We're coming to a close from all the track sessions from last year's forum, and we are just a couple of weeks away from this year's National Disciple Making Forum. If you haven't bought your ticket yet, I would encourage you to do that. Go to discipleship.org. The forum is April 26th and 27th, all the way up in Indianapolis. All right, y'all, I appreciate you being a listener to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.